think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Profoundly Pointless. My name is Nick Vinzant. Coming up in this episode, ocean exploration and the best bobs. The thing that got me in my first submersible dive is once you leave the surface, suddenly it's quiet. It's like really quiet and you're just gliding downwards. And, and then when eventually, four hours later, you start to see the bottom, the seafloor coming up towards you. You have submarine canyons, which are enormous canyons. And some of these features, if they were on land would be a wonder of the world. We are having an effect on the deep sea. Everything we mess with on the surface has a knockdown effect to what's underneath it. I want to thank you so much for joining us. If you get a chance, subscribe. Leave us a rating or review. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. If you're a new listener, welcome to the show. If you're a longtime listener, thank you so much for all of your support. So our first guest has gone on nearly 70 expeditions to the bottom of the ocean, including some of the deepest places on Earth. And what he has found there is fascinating. This is marine biologist and ocean explorer, Alan Jameson. Just for reference, when we talk about meters, triple that and you have feet. Kilometers, take that in half and you have miles. Zero degrees Celsius is 32 degrees Fahrenheit. 25 Celsius is about 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Is the deep sea different or is it just deeper? Like, is it a fundamentally different place than the top of the ocean, for lack of a better phrase? I think that's a very good question. And it's one of these things where we're battling with this. Like, for example, when does the sea become deep? And this is a genuine issue. So the general consensus is the deep sea is 200 meters or more. The term doesn't mean very much, and and it's actually a term which is a little bit damaging because most of planet Earth is deep sea. The largest living space on planet Earth is in the water between 200 metres and the deepest point on Earth. And by calling it deep sea, you were almost saying this is different. This is not your ocean. This is is something else. This is the other worldliness. And so we're psychologically splitting the ocean into two parts. Is the bit that we like, the bit that has whales and turtles and dolphins, and we look out over this, looking at the sunset over the over from the beach. There's, there's that bit that we like to go on boats and stuff, and then there's the deep sea, which is the bit that we don't visit, the bit that we don't like, the bit that's dark and scary. And all that is is an imaginary line that someone has drawn on a chart saying shallow sea, deep sea. 
But is there something like, would you say that as you're, because you've gone down there many times, mm. do you notice like, oh, now I'm in the deep sea? Like, is there a change that you kind of feel? Yeah, there are, there are multiple things that do change. For example, the temperature drops off pretty quick. So you could be 35 degrees Celsius on the surface, and by the time you get to 500 meters, you might be down to 5 degrees. By the time you get beyond 1,000 meters, you're less than 2 degrees. So there's a noticeable drop in temperature. And there's a noticeable drop in water quality as well. So in the surface, there's lots of things like plankton. And when you look out from the submersible, you'll see it's quite cloudy. There's a lot of stuff going on. And when you get down deep enough, it's actually pretty clear. Uh, and once you put the lights on, of course, you, could, you know, it's, it's very, very clean water. So, And there are lots of things that you don't get in the deep sea that you do get in the shallow end, like plants. So seaweeds. Uh, one of the reasons why 200 meters was suggested as a limit is because light penetration from the sun doesn't go that much further than that. So photosynthesis cannot occur. So you, you, you suddenly you don't see any more seaweed or kelp or, or seagrass or anything like that. So there are there are some changes, but generally speaking, looking at the deep sea floor at 6,000 metres isn't that different from scuba diving at 20 metres at night. Help me kind of understand this, I guess, right? Like, I know it's deep. I know the ocean's down there, right? Mm. But I also don't really understand. I can't really imagine it. There's two components to this. There's the vertical component and the horizontal. The horizontal one is one that we struggle with. For example, when I say most of planet Earth is deep sea, it absolutely is. If you go on Google Earth and turn it to the Pacific Ocean, so Hawaii is in the middle, you'll maybe see a little bit of New Zealand, maybe a little bit of California, maybe some Japan. But generally speaking, half the planet is the Pacific Ocean. The average depth of that is 4,000 meters underwater, right? So that's massive, right? So there you go. Half the planet just on that one side is, is deep sea. Now, when you start looking at the numbers there, the Pacific Ocean diameter is something like 15,000 kilometers across. And we struggle with that. We, we, you can't, re, you can't see it. You can't, unless you're an astronaut, I guess, you, you can't see that. So you can't really fully comprehend just how this, the vastness of it. And then the other thing is the vertical one. And this is the one that I find really interesting when you tell people the deepest point on Earth is just short of 11 kilometers. It's about seven miles deep, right? And that's the Mariana Trench. There's a few other places that deep as well. And then when you say that to people and they say, have you been to 10,000 meters underwater? And you're like, yeah, I've done it a few times. And they freak out. And you're, but, but 10 kilometers is not far. Most people probably drive more than 10 kilometers every day. And, you know, it's only half the length of Manhattan, right? So on the horizontal, 10 kilometers is not much. You tilt that 90 degrees and say you're 10 kilometers underwater, suddenly the mind just starts to race. And I think that's a sort of archetypal fear of, of deep water. We don't like the thought of being underwater. We hate the idea of being underwater when it's dark because there's two things that freak human beings out because we're air-breathing, visually-orientated animals is being underwater because you're going to drown and being in the dark because you're no longer in control of your environment. And then the deep sea kind of represents both of those. And we, we use phrases like deepest, darkest fears. And then so you're trying to get people to engage with the largest living space on planet Earth which happens to be the deepest, darkest bit. <laughs> and so, so you're kind of this uphill struggle of trying to get trying to get people engaged without making it sound like a horror film. And everyone says, well, you know, the first thing people normally say when you say you've been in a submarine in the deep sea, they say, "Oh, was it scary?" But no, it's 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 it's, it's not scary. It's actually very tranquil, very peaceful. 
but I'm pretty sure astronauts don't get the same question. They say, oh, were you, were you scared the whole time? Because of the cold and vastness of space that's just, you know, a few millimeters away from you on the outside of the hull. When we were talking, like, the idea of um, going down to the bottom, that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about. Is like, what's that like? To me, that would be terrifying. But I would never think of that in terms of a space shuttle. I would think of that as like, oh, my gosh, exhilarating. You do not get in a submarine and go to 10 kilometers underwater if it's dangerous because it's a very unforgiving place to go if you're not 100% confident in the technology and the engineering behind what you're doing. Why would you? You'd be you'd be a nutcase if you did that, if there was any any uh, chance of it failing. So, And I guess, I mean, submersible diving is probably not for everybody. It takes a certain disposition to do it. Uh, but you are locked in a small titanium ball, just two people in a ball that's probably no bigger than about, I think it's 1.2 metres diameter, and you're sitting in it for 12 hours. And you're in it's... It is I, the, the thing that got me my first submersible dive is once you leave the surface, when you're on the surface, you're bobbing around all over the place and it's it's not particularly comfortable. But once you clear the surface and you start descending, suddenly it's quiet. It's like really quiet and you're just gliding downwards. And it's, it is genuinely very peaceful and it's quite tranquil. And, and then when you eventually, four hours later, you start to see the bottom, the seafloor coming up towards you. And it's just like, wow. And there you are. The, the, the chances are we, we, we quite often are the first human beings ever to see this particular place. And you're looking out and you're taking stock of it. And and quite often it doesn't sink in until afterwards because once you're on the bottom, you have a job to do. And you're you're telling the pilot where to go. You're trying to photograph various things. You're trying to remember what the dive mission actually is and not just start chasing stuff, whatever. You know, so you, you, you're on it and your adrenaline is obviously pretty pretty up there. Uh, and you're trying to do it. And at the end, we dump a weight and the sub starts to float back up. And you have this weird four hours back to the surface where you've, all the excitement is done. You've, 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 you've done it. You've seen what there is to see. And then you feel really tired. And quite often, I, I've nodded off asleep a couple of times on the way back up. And quite often, we just sit and watch a movie on, on someone's phone. And then it, for me, it feels like there's a big excitement when we get to the surface because it's rough and you're rolling around and the ship's trying to pick you up and there's people jumping on the sub and, Everything else. So the last ten minutes is pretty mental. It's 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 not particularly pleasant, but it's all you know. And you eventually climb out the submarine, and everyone's like, "Woo, so great!" And it's about thirty minutes later when you you've got the suit off, you've got all your gear off, and everything else, and you sit and you have a cup of coffee, and you think, "Wow," you know, and you've got time to actually absorb what you've just done, what you've just seen, what it means, you know, the and you've just come back with a head full of new stories. And loads of new data and and stuff like that. And it, uh, for me, I, I mean, other people might be different, but for me, it takes a little bit of a time. And then and that night, you go to bed and you're sort of lying in your bed, going, "God, I went to nine and a half thousand meters this morning." <laughs> you know, I went to nine and a half thousand meters under the ship, and the ship is not big. And it, and it, it it takes a little while to sink in. It's peculiar. It's a hard to it's hard to describe. I would imagine it's kind of like, did that really just happen? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm kind of a numbers person. On a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being like, we don't even know what this wet liquid is, 10 being like, we've got this completely figured out. Where do you think on that scale we would be when it comes to the deep sea? Ooh, that's a difficult one because, yeah. Ooh, there's lots to discuss on that question. I would say somewhere between 5 and 7. 
what part of it would be like the stuff that we kind of know? What part of it would be the stuff that we don't really know? So there's multiple components to this question. One is we are forever hearing phrases like we know more about the moon than the deep sea. And, you know, every TV documentary that talks about the deep sea talks about how much we don't know. That's us telling us what we want to hear. It's not true. Um, but, you know, people have been working in the deep sea for a long time, over 100 years. And sure, we haven't mapped every species on the planet, but it's very rare that you go somewhere and you genuinely see something totally and utterly unexpected. Right. So I think that's, that's an entertainment trope that's crept into science that we keep telling ourselves we know nothing about the deep sea. We do. Right. That's, that's the thing. One of the issues with how much do we know? There's, there's, there's another one that goes around saying we've only mapped 20% of the seafloor. We've only explored 1%, whatever it is. Again, that's not strictly true either. The, it, it, the, the mapping of the, of the seafloor is all a matter of resolution. There are no more Mariana trenches out there to be found, right? There are no big features left. It, it, the, the first complete map of the ocean was printed in 1977. So, you know, it's, if you want to get right into rocks and boulders, then sure, no one's mapped it to that resolution. But realistically, people are going out on a regular basis and finding new hydrothermal vents exactly where they thought they were going to be. We go to big trenches and we find things exactly what, what we think they're going to be. This big new deepest fish story came out a couple of weeks ago. We predicted that entire population of fish will be there and they will be the deepest ones in the world. And no one had ever seen them before and they're an entirely new species and we did it. So that doesn't marry up with the idea we know nothing. But the third component to that is things are changing really fast. And so we are having an effect on the deep sea. Everything we mess with on the surface has a knockdown effect to what's underneath it because most of the deep sea derives its energy from stuff that comes down from the surface. Dead squid, dead jellyfish, dead fish, dead whales, plankton, all that organic material sinks and that's what feeds the deep sea. We're obviously having a lot of influence on what's happening on the surface. And so we've had many occasions where we found something and someone has said, is this, is this right? Is this how it's supposed to be? And we said, well, actually, we're too late. We don't know what a lot of these animals are supposed to be like because we're only now getting a chance to study them while we're going through a period of dramatic change. And so what these... The good example of that was a few years ago, we published a study on microplastics and we found some of the animals at the bottom of each trench. Pretty much all of them had at least one piece of plastic in their gut. At the Mariana Trench, the deepest point in the earth, every single one of them had at least one piece of plastic in its gut. And that's horrendous. And someone asked me on the radio, they said, well, what does this mean for the animal? I says, well, we know this type of stuff comes with a certain degree of contaminants. We know in shallow water species, similar species that we can study, that it reduces the reproductive success. And they said, well, is it affecting the reproductive success of these animals in the bottom of the Mariana Trench? And the answer to that is, we don't know, because they're already contaminated. We've only just found them. So we will never know where it's supposed to be because that window has closed. And that's the problem when we talk about how much we know about the deep seas. We, we, we can get a pretty good snapshot of where things are now, but we've missed the window because it would have been great to get some baseline data from 100 years ago, but there aren't any out there. And so that, that's, that's the problem is how, things, how quickly things are changing. What would you say, like, I know this is a big, broad question, right? But what would you, like, how does what goes on in the deep sea affect everything else around us? Oh, mass massively. Uh, 
So physically, the deep trenches, the deepest parts in the world, are where two tectonic plates collide. So everyone's probably more familiar with hydrothermal vents and volcanoes than seamounts. That's the opposite. So the tectonic plates are interacting in several ways. Where they are sp spreading apart, you get a ridge. So it's a positive feature. It's, certainly, it's like a big, long ridge. At the top of that ridge is where you have volcanoes. That eventually, some of them are so big they become islands, like the Azores or Iceland or whatever. And this is where you see hydrothermal vents. This is where all new sea floor is being created. Now, the Earth isn't getting bigger. So you, for all that new sea floor that's coming out, we're going to lose it somewhere else. So you go to the opposite end, which is mostly the Western Pacific. These two, te two tectonic plates, when they meet each other, are not spreading apart. They're being compressed together. And the heavier one will get pushed down and lift the other one up. And this is where you create these trenches. So things like the Mariana Trench or Japan Trench or whatever. And where they influence human life the most is it's the very deepest points on the Earth which create earthquakes and tsunamis. So the Boxing Day tsunami, you know, 15 years ago, whenever it was, that was the Java Trench that slipped. And it's the tectonic plates are pushing against each other and they jam. And eventually one of them gives. And then when it gives, it launches this enormous big pressure wave that becomes a tsunami. Japan is one of the few places in the world that sits on what's called a triple junction. So you have three tectonic plates all fighting each other for dominance. And Tokyo is right on the corner of that. So with a bit of hindsight, the worst place in the world to build a megacity is exactly where Tokyo is. And it gets rolled over by earthquakes all the time. Same with Chile, stuff like that. That's the deep sea doing that. Uh, in other ways, uh, there's more and more information coming out now that showed some of the original climate models weren't really coming true. Because no one had factored in that all of the warming that's going on in the surface is being absorbed by the water below it, which in hindsight makes perfect sense. And so the deep sea is, is starting to warm and it's, it's, it's pulling that, that heat down from the surface. So there's that. And there's also a, an idea that a lot of people probably don't appreciate is that every animal in the ocean does something. And we call it ecological function. Every animal performs a service to the planet. And most of that is through consuming and redistributing carbon. Now, as I said before, most of planet Earth is deep sea. The vast majority of it, every single animal in the water column, every single animal on the seafloor is, is irrigating, it's gardening. All these little creepy crawlies that are going around the seafloor are, are turning the sediment over. They're gardening, they're, they're oxygenating the seafloor. If they weren't there, all that stuff from the surface and all that crap that we put into the sea will sink and then become stagnant and become some sort of big mass rotting mess. But you need those animals to consume it and to do all these biogeochemical processes to keep the water healthy, to keep the seafloor healthy. And, you know, if the deep sea animals went on strike <laughs> and just decided, you know what, this is, this is no life. This is no life for a sea cucumber. We're giving up for, for a couple of years. The seafloor would become toxic. Pretty sure it end up this rotting mass of organic matter. And that sounds bad. But then we go back to the statistic of 70% of planet Earth is deep sea. And suddenly... The ocean is this big, horrible cesspit. Sounds like a problem. I, I, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> so, like, when you go down there, right? Like, in my mind, I am imagining basically a really deep, flat beach. There are multiple types of features we see on the bottom. So the biggest one is what we call the abyssal plains. And they're called plains for a reason. They look like desert plains. And most of planet Earth is abyssal plain. So most of the Pacific Ocean is big, flat slabs of tectonic plates that genuinely do look a bit like a desert. They're, they will be punctuated by seamounts, which are mountains of about a thousand meters elevation. 
which are just big conical. You know, Hawaii is probably the most famous sea mount. It's so big, it's breached the surface and is now Hawaii. Uh, but then you get other features such as the trenches, like I explained, is where the tectonic plates are. So they're they're very, very deep, but not very big. So they're big, huge cracks, big fissures in the seafloor, which, to give you an idea of scale, the Mariana Trench is roughly the same volume as the Himalaya. So they're not just little cracks in the seafloor, they're huge. Yeah, and it's you know it's it's a mile deeper than Everest is high, and you get other things like fracture zones. So when I explained about the the mid ocean ridges, the earth isn't particularly flexible on the surface. The tectonic plates are not that flexible per se. So those big ridges are not continuous; they break perpendicular to the axis of the ridge, and so you get more of these big cracks forming there, and they form their own little habitats and. Uh, yeah, and then they, and then on the continental shelf, when you when you walk off, you know, eastern seaboard of of America, for example, you if if you could just walk off as far as you can without drowning, uh, you would walk along the continental shelf to a depth of about hundred meters, two hundred meters, and then it suddenly drops off, and you'd walk down to the abyssal plains. But on those continental shelves, sometimes they they fracture and break or erode down, and you have you have submarine canyons, which are enormous canyons. And some of these features, if they were on land. Would be a wonder of the world, because but, but the problem is they're underwater, so you can't see it. So you don't humans don't get that sense of awe. You know, people love Mount Everest. They look at it and they go, "Wow, look at that! That's massive." No one can do that with the Mariana Trench. So some of these features would be impressive. One of my favorite features on that line is there's a place we're going to next year called the Tonga Trench, and it's just a big, huge trench. It's the second deepest place in the world. It runs south of Tonga. And the deepest point is called Horizon Deep. And if you look at it on Google Earth, you'll see this big trench. And somewhere towards the bottom, you'll see some lines running parallel to the trench. And it looks like ripples. It looks, you know, and what it actually is, is the tectonic plate has been pushed down and it is buckling. Right? On, on, the, on the big picture, it doesn't look much. You just look at it and go, oh, well, a couple of, couple of ridges or whatever, escarpments down there. But when you get, if you put yourself in that place, and actually look at the size of these things. They run for about 500 miles. They're at least somewhere between one and two miles high, and a series of ripples, and they're at nine, ten thousand meters deep. So if they were on land, you'd be like, what hell are these things? Right? But because they're buried under 10,000 meters of water, and they're in a little bit of the Pacific where no one ever goes on holiday because it's underwater, right? It, it, it doesn't really, it doesn't, it doesn't go into the public consciousness. And so that's what I find fascinating. It's, there's, there's, there's so much more going on underwater than there is on land. I kind of feel a little dumb asking this question, but has that, has this stuff always been covered? You know, because I yeah, think of yeah. like Pangea where the continents were together, but all of this has kind of always been covered. A lot of it has, yeah. The Western Pacific certainly has, has spent most of its time underwater, but there, there are, you know, the other sort of lesser known fact is whenever there's a desert, that's an old seafloor. So the Sahara Desert, the Gobi Desert, you know, Utah, Nevada, these places, they were old oceans. And that's what creates sand. Sand is, is basically what you find at the bottom of the ocean. So a lot of them have been underwater, but then what happens is once it breaches and, and moves up on land, quite often it gets eroded very quickly. And then we had the Ice Age, and that carved away a lot of what these features would have been. How did you get into this? By mistake. <laughs> That's usually the best way, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so cut a long story short, I went to university begrudgingly because I didn't see any point. And uh, I did a degree in 
industrial design, sort of product design type of thing, very much. Because the only thing I think I was good at was playing drums and technical drawing. And I couldn't get a degree in playing drums. So, <laughs> so I went for a technical drawing one. And I still do all the technical drawing. I still do all the mechanics here on top of everything else. But for my final project at university, I was in Aberdeen, Scotland at the time. And it's the oil and gas capital of Europe. And it's everything subsea engineering and stuff. And I designed this underwater device. And that got me in touch with a professor at another university who was doing subsea gear for biology. And about a year after I graduated, he advertised a job, and I went for the job, and I became his mechanical engineer for a while. Uh, I ended up working for him for about 13 years till he retired, and then took his job in the end. <laughs> and uh, it's somewhere along that road, the stuff I was building and designing was considered to be worthy of a, a master's degree, because my boss found out how little I was being paid. Uh, <laughs> and so I'd know desire to do a master's degree and eventually that became a PhD which I thought was hilarious because I don't really want a PhD I've never my experience at that point of PhD students wasn't good so I was like I don't want to be like them <laughs> so uh, yeah and I eventually just did it for a pay rise essentially and then at some point in the PhD journey I, I asked myself why why does everybody design gear and deploy gear to 6,000 meters that's only halfway I mean, sure, 98% of the planet will get, you, will get you there, but why Why does no one push that last bit? So I did some theoretical designs for it, started looking at the biology of it, and over the, over a space of about five, ten years, just got more and more into the biology. So now, technically, I'm a professor of marine biology. I don't actually have any formal qualifications in biology whatsoever. So I'm really just a mechanic, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like... I just, I'm the holes and poles guy. <laughs> right, right. Like, I was just assembling a key of furniture one day, and next thing I know, I'm at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, I, I think I, it's come back to that whole thing of people of a certain disposition that when I went for that job interview and trying to work out what it was about, he says, well, you build this gear we put underwater. I'm like, yeah. And the guy was like, oh, we go out on ships and we'll put this stuff in the deep sea. I'm like, I'm sold. I don't know. I don't. Even, at that point, I'm like, I don't even know what that is. I don't even really know what these guys are talking about. But that sounds awesome. When we talk about kind of the life that is down there, is this you get down there and you're kind of always seeing something, or is it very sporadic? Uh, the bigger stuff is quite sporadic. But if you know what you're looking for, you'll see this life everywhere. And the, and some of these environments are so slow moving that the sediment on the bottom takes about a thousand years for every centimeter of mud that's laid down. So it's, it's slow. The current speeds are slow. So you see a mix of animals and a mix of where animals have been. So you see their tracks and their burrows and all these little pits and things. And you can actually infer quite a lot about what's there just based on the traces they've left behind. Uh, but generally speaking, I, I feel it's much more interesting and diverse and abundant than I think a lot of people would picture in their heads. There's not many places we've been where we've thought that was a boring dive. I think the worst worst place we ever went was probably Eastern Mediterranean, where it was basically plastic litter outweighed life by about 10 to 1. <laughs> that was that sucks. But Eastern Med's pretty bad anyway. But generally speaking, there's, there's, if, if you can't see anything out the viewport of the sub, you will do within a matter of minutes. That's the kind of frequency on which we see stuff. I would think that if there's something down there, they would be very curious about a sub coming down there. The, some of the fish, I don't think I've ever told this story before. So this, this is a new one. But the, some of the fish are skittish. There's some fish you come across, and as soon as, you, as soon as you're anywhere near it, you can, you can kind of see a sediment cloud because they've obviously just went, well, 
you know, 10 million years of evolution. I've never seen a big thing with thrusters and lights come to, coming at me. So it just runs. There's another species of fish called Basozetus, which we study a lot. It's a big brown thing that hangs around somewhere between five and a half and six and a half thousand years. And it's not the brightest tool. Uh, you know, it's not the sharpest tool in the box, right? It's this, this big old fish that just stares at the cameras a lot. And we came across one a couple of years ago, and it was almost like it didn't know what to do. And you could, you could, you could it almost had a personality. It was kind of hanging there in the lights going, well, because uh, these things are almost blind, right? They can't really see anyway. And it kind of, it's kind of like tilting its head going, something's not right. Uh, should I run? Oh, wait, wait a minute. I don't have enough energy to do that. Uh, maybe I should just turn around. <laughs> you see this poor thing, it's just like, uh, there's no SOP for this. I don't, I don't, uh, you know, it's just like, it almost, it almost didn't have an, ins- it had no instinct of what to do. And it just kind of lurked a bit. It just looked really uncomfortable. And it felt almost like, uh, maybe we should, we should just leave it alone now and just, just back off and just let it get back to its Tuesday afternoon. Because we've obviously, <laughs> we've obviously disturbed it. That was very funny. That's kind of the way I would feel if aliens suddenly showed up. I'd be like, I don't know what I'm, yeah. I'd be like, I should run, but I'm too curious to see what this is. Yeah, no one prepared me for this, right? There's just a thing. It's like, am I supposed to run? Am I supposed to attack it? I'm, you know, yeah. This is another one of those questions that I don't know if this will make sense, right? But like when we talk about things that are living at the bottom like that, are they living things like I think of like whales and horses and like stuff with personalities and that are moving and doing stuff? Or is it more like alive, like algae? Like, yeah, it's alive, but. No, no, no. It's, it's, so there's a couple of points to this. So whenever you watch or read about deep sea in the press, they'll show you things like anglerfish with the bioluminescent lure and the big teeth, the beady eyes, and they're all black and scary. Now, they are genuinely very small. Some of them are relatively large, but generally speaking, they're very, very small. And generally speaking, they're in the top 1,000 meters. But they're like the poster kids for deep sea. So when people think deep sea, they think that. That is not really deep sea. That is dark sea. That's the animals that live in the top 1,000 meters where there's a very small fraction of sunlight still getting down. This is what they call the twilight zone. So all those adaptations are to do with hunting at night in a low-light environment with very little food. When you get down to deep sea proper, and when I say proper, I would say a 1,000 metres or more, the the fish and the other animals tend to look either the same or at least a bit woebegone. They're, they're either, they kind of look a bit boring. So they don't get on TV very much because they're not ugly enough to be hideous and they're not beautiful enough to be beautiful. They're kind of in between. They're kind of like a bit sad looking and a bit... Some of them you actually look a bit bored. But what's interesting about familiar groups of animals is just take the last four years, for example, we, we know there are fish at just over 8,000 meters. They don't look like deep sea fish. They're not even deep sea fish. They're shallow water fish. They're a shallow water family that has evolved so quickly. They've actually overtaken all the deep sea fish by a thousand meters. So the deepest fish in the world is a little pink thing that looks like a bit like a sock puppet. It looks a kind of weird, goofy looking thing. Uh, we found a Dumbo octopus at 7,000 meters that just looks like a beautiful little Dumbo with his big ears just going around doing Dumbo stuff. And it was 2,000 meters deeper than any other cephalopod. A year after that, we found a squid just being a squid at 6,500 meters. We found jellyfish at 10,000 meters. We found comb jellies at 10,000 meters. 
we find these big, beautiful, bright red prawns that are almost a foot long. We see those down to 8,000 meters. So a lot of this stuff, if you were to show someone the video and say, where did this come from? There'd be nothing in there that you, would, you wouldn't be able to instantly recognize that as being deep sea. They would be quite familiar. And one of my favorite animals is a, a type of anemone. It's called a galathianthemum, which is a horrendous word, but they're, they look like little white roses. They look like flowers, but they're an anemone. And you find them at the deepest point on Earth. And they're just sitting there attached to a rock, just look like, it looks like they're just swaying in the wind. They're just sort of slowly rocking back and forward in the current, and there's nothing weird about it at all. It's just, it's a, a genuinely a beautiful animal. And it's one of the most hardcore animals on the planet. <laughs> Are you ready for some harder slash listener submitted question? Yes, go for it. What do you think is harder to comprehend, deep sea or space? I think deep sea. I think it's the one that's the most misunderstood. People seem to be quite happy with space, uh, but people still seem to be conflicted when it comes to deep sea. Which one was your favorite expedition? I think you've been, if I'm correct, like 65? Yeah, coming up to 70 now, I think, yeah. Uh, favorite expedition? Oh, I'd like to think there was one in the Indian Ocean we did, which was my first submersible dive, which I wasn't expecting, and that was a glorious dive. It was one of those real mental ones, because my first ever submersible dive, we went to 7,500 metres. So I wasn't I wasn't being broken in gently. Uh, and it was the pilot at the time was really, really funny, and we had such a laugh. It was great. And that was the same one where we found the octopus, and it was one of those ones that was a very short trip, but every day, every every bit of tech we had just kept on giving. It was one of those amazing places. It could have stayed there for a month. Do you get nervous? Do you get anxious about it? Or is it like, all right, going to the bottom of the ocean and it's Wednesday? Uh, surprisingly not. I mean, we have had some incidences in the sub. We've had the hatch leaking at one point when we're thousands of meters underwater. And, and we've had an incident last September where we were nearly at the seafloor at 9,000 meters and there was a big old mighty bang on the outside of the sub and we couldn't place what it was. And so we had to abort. We just we got to make that decision in a space of like 60 seconds ago. Something just popped on the outside of the sub. We're still going down. Uh, and so pressure is only increasing. So we need to make the call. And you have this. And what's weird is in those situations, I think I trust the submarine so much and, I, and the pilots trust it as well that it's rather than nobody panics, nobody freaks out. In fact, if anything, it's the opposite. You suddenly, because you're inside the submarine, you can't see out of it. Your eyesight is useless. And suddenly it's like your brain just reactivates everything to do with your hearing. And you're just sitting there listening. Is anything, is anything cracking? Is anything doing, you know, and then you're very quietly speaking to each other and saying, okay, what was that? What could it be? Is it, should we be worried about this? Do we need to abort? And you just do it. And, you know, it's maybe some, maybe some, like I said before about that, it's maybe it's not till afterwards where you're sitting with a cup of coffee thinking, out, what did I just do? Sometimes there's been a case where it, the same thing has happened there and you're thinking, oh, wow, we just aborted a dive at 9,000 metres and we're still not quite sure what it was that made that bang. And then, and then you get the opposite. You're like, oh, maybe we should have freaked out. But I, I think it, knows, it must be the same as being like an airline pilot. If you're the type of person who freaks out when things go wrong, then you're probably in the wrong job. Does it, does, what does it sound like? Like, can you, I would imagine you've got external microphones or something on the sub. Like, what is that? So in the sub, you you can hear the, the thrusters moving a little bit. It makes a sort of, high, like a sort of relatively high-pitched whining noise, and you hear them sort of, like, whizzing back and forward a little bit. But generally, it's spookily quiet. 
And so there's been times where, you know, it's a long day for us. So when you get in the submarine, shut the hatch, it's 12 hours before you can get out. And so you take your lunch. And there's been times where we've four hours down, four hours at the bottom, four hours back up. Halfway during the four hours on the bottom, we just park up. You just set it on the seafloor and you stretch your legs a little. You can't really stretch your legs, but you can move your legs from back and forward a little bit uh, and take a few selfies and whatever, you know, take a picture of the thing and just eat a sandwich uh, and just sit there and eat some Doritos sitting on the bottom of the ocean, just checking out this and that. And then 15 minutes later, get back to it again. And it's, and when you switch, when you, the point is when you get down and you sit on the bottom and you switch the thrusters off, it is just the most silent you could experience. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Follow up that excellent answer with this question, of course, from our audience. How do you go to the bathroom? Ah, yes, that question. Uh, there's two, there's, there's two ways to overcome this. Uh, there are, there are, on a, on a day you, you dive in the submarine, you normally get maybe four hours before the dive. And basically you drink a couple of cups of water, coffee, whatever, and then that's it. You just stay off it. When you get thirsty, the trick is to just put, half a glass of water in your mouth, swirl it around a bit and spit it out. That seems to satisfy your thirst without taking on water. So that's a little trick that I do. Uh, I also have been blessed with an ion bladder. So uh, I, it's never bothered me. And to the point where one of the guys I dive with quite a lot, one of the sub-pilots, he does not have an ion bladder. So he uses what is called the range extender, which is a plastic bottle. But just to wind them up, when we did a dive before, I was trying to, I was boasting about my ion bladder to the point where before we got in the submarine, I downed a whole pint of apple juice in front of him just to show, <laughs> just, just, just to wind him up. Saying, yeah, yeah, doesn't bother me, mate. As a person who does not have an iron bladder, I understand that you've been to the bottom of the ocean and gone to places that no one has been before, but holding it for 12 hours might be the most impressive. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that we'll ever be able to really make a home there or to really have people kind of coming and going, so to speak? Probably not. Uh, I don't see any reason why you would want to live underwater. So there are there has been underwater habitats. And was, I know a guy who spent a lot of time on one. And it's not a deep sea one. It's one that used to be off Hawaii, I think. And the idea was the divers would live in this underwater habitat and they can go diving every day for like two or three weeks. And he was saying that the, the air inside is so moist that you end up growing fungus all over your body because you're basically damp for weeks on end. And the human body isn't really made for that. So... There's that, and there's just a sheer expense of trying to clean that air, trying to get fresh air, trying to get food up and down, and all that kind of stuff. So I, I think for the foreseeable future, it's not particularly practical. Where it is becoming more accessible is the number of cruise liners now that have submersibles on it. And so when you do your Antarctic cruise or around the Mediterranean or up the Arctic, whatever it may be, there are opportunities now you can just jump in a sub, and a pilot will take you down 200 meters, 500 meters, and you can go see stuff and come back again. It's becoming more and more common. In fact, there are more tourist submarines now in the world than there are science. And so there are ways in which you can access the deep sea that without necessarily living in it. Is there anything down there that you think that would change that? And the thing that jumps into my mind is like, okay, we find oil or we find something that we can manage. And that now this is now the next great frontier of exploration and economic activity. There is sort of deep sea mining is becoming a, a very contentious subject at the moment. And you know, they are they have developed these enormous harvester machines which are controlled from the surface. And I think in cases like that, there's probably no some indiscriminate destruction of a seafloor doesn't necessarily require a pilot. It just requires a remote system. But I feel like that's one of the things though, and with me knowing nothing about it, like we should not mess with that. 
Let's just leave that whole thing. I think one of the one of the biggest issues at the moment in deep sea is to is we never learn our lesson. This is the thing, right? So just at the point of where you know we did a study a while back about man-made contaminants in the deep sea, which are astronomically high. These are particles that were made in the fifties and then banned in the eighties, and they were banned because they don't, they don't ever degrade; they just pass from one animal to another. <clears throat> And then you say, well, what did we learn from that? Oh, well, we started creating more and more plastic. And then so all the plastics in the sea. And everyone's screaming about, oh, we, we, microplastics, microplastics, nanoplastics. Ah. And then you find out that the silver nanoparticles are now in socks and deodorants and all this kind of stuff and microbeads and facial scrubs. It's like, what are microbeads? They're not cosmetic microbeads. You're actually making microplastics that are designed to be flushed down the shower or down the sink. Where does that plug hole end up? And no one thinks about that, right? You use, and it's just, you're literally pouring little bits of plastic into the sea. And it's like, how is this even legal? And then you have all this, all this business about oil and gas industry moving into deeper water. And when oil and gas came online around the sort of 70s offshore, uh, biology or science that played a bit of a game of catch-up because they started going for it. It was a gold rush, right? And everybody needs oil and whatever. And then suddenly realized that maybe some of this, maybe maybe this isn't the best for the environment. And then you say, okay, well, if there's ever going to be another big industry going in the sea, maybe we should do the science first to then understand what's happening. And then deep sea mining comes along and it's, it's there's this constant struggle, this race on between those who want to destroy thousands of square kilometers of seafloor that has taken 10 million years to form and will not recover for another 10 million years if it ever does and those who are saying i don't think we should do this <laughs> and but the people who are saying i don't think we should do this are not being promised a billion dollar check and then we're probably just going to make the same mistake all over again and that's the saddest thing about human race is we just don't learn <laughs> I was a I was a history major in college, and one of my history professors said, "If there was one constant in human history, it's that we never learn the lesson that we never learn our lesson." Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah I know. We really just, don't. Yeah, we don't like, are we doing this all over again? Yes, we are. <laughs> it's just like we're gonna do that, right? Yeah. What What would you personally say, like for you? What was your favorite place down there? They're all unique and weird in their own little ways, but one of the more recent ones I did was. Uh, just off Japan, it was a place called the Boso Triple Junction. And it's the exact junction where those three tectonic plates I was telling you about meet. And the seafloor plunges down to 9,500 metres. And that was the one where there was a big bang on the outside and we aborted it. But a week later, we tried it again and figured that it would be fine. Uh, and we got down there. And it's a unique place in that you have these animals called crinoids, which are sea lilies. They look like ferns. They look like plants. So you quite often see crinoids in the paleo record you'll see this sort of circular fan looks like a plant embedded in the, in the rock. And so there's not many shallow water versions of these, but the deep ones are stocks. So they look like plants. But there, they're at 9,500 metres, they're all bright yellow. And normally on a dive to these types of depths, you would be lucky if you saw maybe one or two on a rock somewhere. At the bottom of Boso Triple Junction, there were thousands and thousands and thousands. And it's called the Crinoid Meadow. And that was just like, this is so surreal. It was like driving around in someone's backyard because there were these big steps in the rocks because it's such a gnarly place geologically anyway. And there's just these big yellow flowers growing and everything. And it was, you know, it was like a meadow and it was just like that it was really quite surreal. 
And on the opposite end of that, one of the most bizarre places, which I've still got a great affection for, was a place called the Wallaby Zenith Fracture Zone. And it's out 500 miles off West Australia. And me and this guy, who uses the range extender, <laughs> uh, came down and we found, and deep sea mining is all about manganese nodules. It's about these black balls on the seafloor that only form in deep water and so on. And we had an inkling that there would be some there. But when we came down on the seafloor, we're like, oh my lord, there were billions of these things. Like, the entire seafloor was black. It was like someone had laid out 10 billion cannonballs on the seafloor. Beautiful, perfectly spherical black balls. And at the time, we were quite often listened to music on the way down. At the time, we were listening to corn. And we had the Dead Bodies Everywhere was playing on the stereo at the time. And it was like, this is so creepy, it's weird. It's like, you know, corn is your soundtrack to landing on what appeared to be this blackened alien planet wasn't maybe the best choice of soundtrack but it was <laughs> that's aggressive music to be listening to going down there <laughs> like yeah. yeah you got you got to keep your mind going yep. um do you think that there is something there we haven't found and i think what this person means in that sense is like is there some big thing i'll use the example of like is it mariana or mariana i always mariana. get this Mariana. Mariana. Yeah. Like, do you think there's still a place like that that we don't know about? No. So when I was when I was talking about we've mapped all of the ocean, it just depends to what resolution. Most of the ocean has been mapped using satellite-derived altimetry. So there's satellites that look for bumps on the sea surface, and you can infer from data that's been mapped more accurately what those bumps mean. And so there are no more trenches to be found. We know where they all are. Uh, when you get down to the scale of smaller seamounts, maybe there are a whole bunch more that aren't being picked up on that. But generally speaking, the, the general lay of the land is, is, is solid. So there are no more trenches to be found, unfortunately. Okay. I'm pretty sure you have, you know, you get asked this question all the time. But let me phrase it this way. If there was like another Atlantis or human civilization or some intelligent life living down there, would you be surprised? Like, is it big enough that this something like this could happen? Like, if you suddenly saw, like, Namor walking around down there, would you be surprised about it? If you were going to hide in plain sight, that's where you would do it, right? And if you were, if you were, if you were to evaluate the human race and look at the places they don't normally go and say, where would be a good place to hide on this planet? you would see that there's very, very few people going deeper than about 4,000 meters. So, yeah, I mean, if <laughs> on a purely hypothetical alien invasion, then if I were an alien, I would hide in the trench because the chances are no one's going to even clock you there. Because mo most militaries don't even have capability of going to depth we do. In fact, they don't. That's, that's one of the issues. So one of the things we discovered a few years back was when we're working in the Mariana Trench, we found lots and lots of fiber optic cables. To the point where it's almost undivable now. The deepest place on the earth is just covered in these like abandoned coils of fiber optic. I'm thinking, what? Why would anyone do this? Someone's obviously cut these off and whatever. And then you're thinking, well, what is on Guam? Because Guam is the nearest island to Mariana. Guam is essentially essentially the top bit of the ridge of the Mariana. And so, well, what's there? Well, in Guam is basically a massive U.S. Navy Air Force base. Now, if you want to listen to submarines coming in and out of Guam and you wanted to deploy some hydrophones or listening devices talk about hiding in plain sight if you stick them down in the bottom of the Mariana you're within easily within earshot of a naval base for a navy that doesn't have the capacity to know you were there 
and then suddenly you start to see all this abandoned technology and we don't see that in any other trench we only see it in the one next to the airbase <laughs> so you're like hmm i wonder what's been going on there so yeah very suspicious right um oh you want to end on it like i don't want to end on a bad note but like are we ruining it yes can we fix it I think we can fix it, and I think on a positive note, we have to think about stop thinking about the deep sea as being the deep sea. Stop thinking about it as being this other dimension that doesn't matter to us. I think so. To turn that question around, we are affecting it, and people need to acknowledge that and realize that it's you know if, if this big these big garbage patches in the mid Pacific, everyone's aware of that, and I don't think anyone wants that, right? No, who I don't think anyone in the right mind is going to go, yeah, I'm I'm all for the big Pacific garbage patch. Uh, but you've got to be aware that it's sinking. It's 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 not, you know plastic breaks down. It's just going to weather and eventually sink. Now where's it going? And there's this weird thing because we keep telling ourselves the deep sea is deep. It's out of sight, out of mind. The sinking of that material isn't being transported to another dimension. It's still on planet Earth, and the deep sea is still very much planet Earth. And then so it's trying to break that barrier, trying to blur the lines between the top bit of the ocean that we love and we write poems about uh, and the rest of it, which is 95% of it. It's just to remember the ocean is just one big body of water from the top to the bottom. And there is no imaginary line there that says the top half is the bit you should care about and the deep bit is the bit you don't care about. And if we're affecting the top, we're affecting all of it. And it's not this gradient of how much we should care. You should care about all of it. And what we're trying to do with releasing the videos that we do and the talks that we do and the types of science we do is show people that, and like even this podcast, we're trying to show people that the deep sea is really cool. It's really interesting. It's fascinating. There's, there's stuff there that you don't appreciate is normal. It's familiar. It's it's not that bizarre. And, you know, we're desperately trying to get documentary makers and, and, and journalists to stop this ridiculous monsters of the deep trope because that's keeping people from caring. Because... Nobody cares about the monster in a horror film, but they'll still they still want to see it, but they don't care about it, uh, and that's what we're trying to undo. It's trying to get that make the deep sea positive, as a, you know, as a beautiful part of the planet. I get caught up listening to people. I was just listening to everything you were saying. I was like, "Yeah, we got to do that. Let's get on this. Let's get on this, man." <laughs> um, is there anything else you think that we missed? What's kind of coming up next for you? Where can people learn more? Uh, learn more. Uh, we there's a TED talk out, uh, which is seems to get a lot of traction at the moment. Uh, we have a various website if you just Google the Mindaru UWA Deep Sea Research Center, we'll find out stuff there. And the next step for us is we're going to take it up another level because that's how we that's how we roll. So rather than doing a few dives and a few pokes around various deep bits. We've decided the the ship and the submersible we we we've been working on the last four years has now been is now under new ownership. Uh, so a very wealthy person has bought it and is basically letting us loose. Uh, and so we want to do the biggest horizontal project ever. So on as of the first of June, we're going to leave for two forty day legs back to back and take the ship from San Diego to Hawaii and then down to Tahiti and then back again twice to look at these big, huge expanses over the Pacific. Because a lot of people work around Hawaii, they work around California, they work around New Zealand, but nobody's joining the dots between these big things that we're seeing. So that one is a huge, big horizontal one. And then come New Year, we're going to go down to Tonga Trench. And the idea is to get video and data from every 150 meters from the surface to the second deepest place on the planet. 
and to try and demonstrate that you don't have to be the deep sea guy, you don't have to be the shallow water guy. Just do all of it. You know, it might take us ninety days to do it, but let's do all of it. Let's do it right from the top to the bottom on the sea floor and in the water column. And then a month after that, go up to the Philippine Trench and do it all again. And then by next Christmas, we'll be in Antarctica and we'll do it again, but we'll do it at sub-zero temperatures. So, so the Does next it, year and a half is going to be mental. I think it's going to, if, if we make it out alive, it was going to be amazing. <laughs> does it ever, does it ever freeze? It does, does it ever freeze? No, uh, down South Sandwich Trench, which is Antarctica, the, it's the only place in the world which is sub zero in the trenches. So it, it could, because it's salt water, the freezing point is lower. So you can get to just less than zero degrees. Which is pretty hardcore. Thinking there's there's beautiful little fish living there in sub-zero temperatures, and at a pressure of eight hundred atmospheres, and they're just swimming around being little fish. <laughs> so. I want to thank Alan so much for joining us. If you want to connect with him, we have linked to him on our social media sites. We're profoundly pointless on Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube, and we have also included his information in the episode description. If you are listening to this on May 10th, the YouTube version of this interview will be live on May 11th at around 4.30 Pacific time. Okay, now let's bring in John Shull and get to the pointless part of the show. How do you feel about the ocean? Two emotions come to mind. One, uh, terrified. And secondly, uh, just damn impressed of it. Uh, my favorite thing to do is cruising, and I literally stand there and overlook the ocean. It's that incredible to me. I have to say I don't really like it. <laughs> I'm impressed by it. I'm scared of it, but I don't really like the ocean. I like the beach. I like going into the water, but once you get out there on like the open, open ocean, I've only been on a cruise ship once. It's pretty terrifying. I'm more scared of uh, of what you can see than what you can't see, but I would imagine what you can't see is more terrifying than actually what you can see, which is even more terrifying when you really think about it. Are you what are you more afraid of, space or the ocean? I mean, the, probably the ocean. Yeah, there's something that seems to me more scary about it. I feel like it would be a worse death. I would rather die in space than in the ocean because I feel like in space at least it's going to be a little bit quicker. Yeah, you know, I've uh, you hear these stories about people that are lost at sea or spend two, three weeks, you know, just sometimes drifting in a, in a boat that's disabled or a or you know, or a, one of those uh, blow up rafts. I can't even. Can you imagine being in a blow up raft? Say it's fifteen feet long, and you're just in the ocean, just going with the current. That would be. That would that would be that would be one of the worst ways I think I to die for me would just something like that. I would. That's what I think separates space from the ocean. Like in space, you're just as dead, but there's no real hope. Like you know, like nobody's coming for you. <laughs> it's not like they're launching a backup shuttle or somebody ha might yeah. just happen to be flying by. But in the ocean, there's a little bit of hope. Like well, maybe. maybe. <laughs> I feel like that's what makes it more scary. Until, yeah, there is a little bit of hope until you realize it's a plane that's 30,000 feet in the air and you can see them, but they don't see or care about you. I just, you know, one of the, this necessarily, it was in the ocean, but it was more like rain related was that 
we were on i was on a cruise ship one time and you could literally see the thunderstorm coming over the water that was pretty intense that was a, a moment i'll never forget i don't understand your love of cruise ships <laughs> i to me that's the worst vacation in the world just on this boat <laughs> i mean just it's basically like the whole vacation is just driving somewhere and coming back no it's basically a transportation vacation you're just traveling it's 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 kind of what i said opening up this this question you had was it's just kind of being out in the excuse me in the middle of the ocean just uh i, I love the, the fact that you can literally turn off your phone and no one you know it, no one can no one can get a hold of you you're off the radar or at least you think you're off the radar for for a few days i don't understand when people say that like who's who's contacting you what's going on all the time <laughs> that you need to be off grid that much i've never understood anyone who says that like i just got to be off grid I mean, like then you need to just set better priorities in your <laughs> daily life well you may be correct in, in saying that that might be right. Accurate. It's like the only way that I can have any kind of boundaries and set priorities around my life is if I'm forced to be cut off from it. That's kind of what you're saying to me. I mean, I, I mean, you're right. I mean, you should set better boundaries. However, it, you know, it, it's it's good to just get away and not have the responsibilities that you usually have. And on a cruise ship, it's easy to do because once you leave port, you're like what you said earlier. You're kind of out in the middle of nowhere. Maybe somebody will find you. Maybe they won't. Okay. All right. I just want to, I just want to, I also just want to add that if you've never been on a cruise ship, uh, do it. You owe it to yourself to at least do it once. I would also like to add that if you have an opportunity to go on a cruise ship, pass. Uh, let's see. We'll start off with uh, Charlie Faulkner, Nate Heff, Robert Finley, Jesse Bolt. I like that. I like that name for some reason. Jesse Bolt. It's a strong name to me. JB and can be abbreviated. And, and JB. Uh, Curtis Furrer. Dylan Gregson. Nathan Roy. Kai Walker. Clad. Are you sure it's clad? I think actually it might be Claude. How do you spell it? I think I missed a U, but I think it's C-L-A-U-D. I'm pretty sure it's Claude Burke, not Clad Burke. I wouldn't think that. That would be like naming somebody like Pine. Well, or... Like, you don't name people words. <laughs> well, I'm going to end on the uh, the name of the week, our shout-out of the week, which goes to Porter Healy. What a great name, Porter. I like that name. Yeah, that's okay. That's one of those limited, limited names, right? Like, as long as it's in a limited number of people, that's a good name. Can't have too many people named Porter. So this is actually this is this is ironic that uh, this would come up because uh, on my bangers for you, uh, which by the way Nick and I don't really share uh, we don't share ideas before the show because why would we why would we be prepared? Um, one of my questions was to ask you if you could own one of these things, which one would you own? And it was a private jet or a like a cruise ship slash mini yacht. And uh, but now I'm no, I know what you're going to say because you've already expressed your displeasure with uh, boatcraft. So yeah, I would go with a private jet, faster, mm. more efficient, more convenient. Because like otherwise, if you got a big private boat, like it's not like you can go anywhere with that. 
or it takes you forever. So private jet's an easy one. See, I, and I think it might. I don't think the cost would be that much less. I'm going to go with boat. I think it'd be great to have a boat and just sail and, and, and drive wherever you wanted. Plane sounds great. Plane sounds like it'd be the obvious choice until you start thinking about, you know, being in the air a lot, cramped up. You, you but know. you can't go wherever you want. Sure you can. You can still go uh, around the world in a boat. It's going to take you longer, and you're going to have to, you know, once you get to a port, you're going to have to take a car or something. But it's you can, you're can. you going to have to take a plane. So you still have to take a plane to get to some places, right? You can take your boat to Spain, but how are you going to get to Sweden? Drive. Or just have your private jet. It, just, you know, the private jet's the better one, right? Like, stop trying to justify it because you can't. It's ridiculous. I just think the private jet is the better one. The important part of this is that I had a question involving a cruise ship uh, before we even, you even mentioned the question of a of a cruise. Um, All right. What would you rather be as you grow older? Known for your endurance or known for your swollenness? You mean my basically endurance or strength? Yes. Life is a marathon, man. It's not a sprint. Endurance is always better. So you're going for the long longevity then. You don't want to be you don't want to be a rip shitter right out the gate. You want to be, you know, the marathon runner. No. I want to try to have a good 20 to 30 year stretch <laughs> rather than a good year stretch. Let's see. Right? That's that's the that's the mindset people who peak in high school. <laughs> and you didn't peak in high school. Look at you. you're peaking right now with that great hair. I still hope I haven't paid, uh, peaked. <laughs> I'd like to peak. I would like to peak at 47. Well, you're only two years away, right? It's like it's a little bit longer than that, right? I have a buddy the other day. I, I didn't know how, how old he was, and he, he was mentioning his birthday coming up. And I said, oh, well, how old are you? And he told me he's going to be 56. And I said, what? I've gone through life That's this good. whole time thinking you were 44 tops, and you're going to be f- you know, mid fifties. Oof. Yeah, you're still really old. That's the difficulty, <laughs> though. If you look younger than you are, then people expect you to be a certain age, and then maybe they think that you're lame. Like, what if, like, man, that's a really lame thirty-five year old. <laughs> oh, I'm forty-five. <laughs> oh, you always feel a little out of place. I think it's better to look younger, but then you also feel a little out of place. I think. Because you don't look like the age that you are. Same for people who looked like they were 30 in, in high school. Uh, I that, oh, that that sentence just makes me want to throw things against the wall. Because of growing up in the era that we did, the LeBron James debate was every time you turned around, it was always, he's not in high school, he's really 27. Or he's really 25. It's like, no, he isn't. He's just, you know, just built differently. That is the thing. Usually when you see prodigy athletes, like they look 10 years older than they really are. Like that's a grown man at 17. <laughs> right. All right. Let's see. Uh, so uh, I'm going to take this off a little different path this week. Uh, and I want to ask you uh bring up something real fast. So Guardian, Guardians of the Galaxy 3 comes out this week. Uh uh, well, actually, I think it come, came out like Friday, but either way, it's already. Yeah. yeah. Um, what's your thoughts on it? Is it going to be the movie of the year? Do you, could you care less? Is it going to be, you know, it's number three, obviously. So is it, is it going to 
is it going to be just a just another money maker and just be a completely pointless movie to the to the storyline? I am sick of basically all media and TV shows and movies. I feel like we haven't seen anything that is truly different in the last five years. All of the big movies have been superhero movies. They've all been the same concept. All of the new shows that are coming out on Netflix or whatever, they're all these true crime things or young adult featured things. There really isn't anything new or different that has come out in entertainment, I feel like, in the last couple of years. The most recent thing that I saw would be like, oh, that's a little bit different. Like, that's something that I would actually like to watch and be interested in is the Sandman stuff that was on Netflix. That's the most recent thing that I've like hasn't been basically either superhero movie or true crime. I mean, you know, I I, I think you're that, that's a pretty bold statement. I don't agree with it. Uh, Name the last couple of movies that you have seen that have what's the last movie that you saw that you would be like, that was different than a movie that I have seen before. Well, I wasn't necessarily thinking movies, but TV shows, if, if you were coping that in, I mean, you could say The Last of Us is different. Uh, zombie walking dead parody okay uh succession then that you're gonna say business basically basically business sopranos ted lasso that okay i haven't actually seen it but i've heard that maybe that's a different tone than other shows that it's a sports show but it's not you know i mean when's the last sports show that's been successful other than ted lasso and i'm not talking about like the drive to survive or any of those like docuseries shows I mean, like a TV show. I don't think that there's really any. I don't think that there's really very many non-kind of news and or commentary related sports shows that have ever been successful. Ted Lasso is probably the most successful one, and I can't even think of something else that was centered around sports that's even close. I mean, coach back in the 90s, but I... Oh, yeah. But was he really coaching? Did he ever... Was was there ever (laughs) anything about him actually out on like the soccer field? Or whatever he was supposedly coaching. I can't recall. I don't. I don't think they actually ever showed any like real scenes of athleticism. That show. Maybe Friday Night Lights. Friday Night Lights. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I like that show, but also you know it's hard for me to differentiate that show from like a because it was clearly made for a certain kind of demographic. And as I get, it was more of a drama than it was an actual kind of like anything. Yeah, but it was more of like for teenagers. Like, if I watched it now, I feel like I would care less about most things in that show. Yeah, I would agree with that. That's it. That's all I got. We're, we're, oh, you don't have anything else? That's it, man. We, we, we ran through my content oh, okay. today. Okay. All right. Are you ready for our top five? Let's get it, Bob. So our top five, our, our top five is top five Bobs. And Roberts do not count. They have to go by Bob <laughs> and only by Bob. So any kind of like Robert De Niro's, anything like that, that does not count. They have to go by Bob. What's your number five? So as always, as I always do, I'm going to preface this with saying, I did not realize how many Bobs there were. Um, like, And I, when I say that, I mean people who go by the name Bob or went by the name Bob, and you're like, oh, that's Bob so-and-so. Anyways, there's there's a lot, but I would say that there are some at the top that are truly kind of influential in society. There's a lot of mid-level bobs. I think you're not going to like my list because I think you're going to say a lot of my bobs are outdated. But I feel that if you're saying a top five list, these bobs have to be on it. So my number five is going to be Bob Hope. 
Oh, that's pretty. That's going back there a ways. It is. But he was. He's somebody that if we were older, we might have actually put him much higher on the list. I think he was very influential at a certain time. Mm-hmm. Probably one of the most famous people. Probably maybe one of the most famous Bobs, but he's just not our time. <laughs> right. Well, that, that's, that's what I said. I, I kind of try to think all-encompassing as I do on these lists because my lists are superior to yours, uh, as given the video game top five characters list last week. Uh, in saying that... You had Donkey Kong tied with Mario. What's your number? That's just what's your number that's five. That's just ridiculous. Bob Barker. Okay, so <laughs> I have him on the list. He's a little higher up for me, but uh, um, I, uh, I don't think he should be higher than five. But in terms of well, I'll, I'll I'll get I'll get back to him in a in a in a minute or two. How about that? Okay, okay. Who's your number four? Bob Newhart. What was the show that he was on? Oh, God, you would put me on the spot for this. Um, Is that All in the Family? No, it was not All in the Family. Um, the Newhart. Bob Newhart. Yeah, I show. think it was the... Oh, it was called yeah. Bob Newhart Show. I, I thought you were trying to play a joke on me because I was going to say, I'm pretty sure it's a Newhart Show, and then you were going to come out and say it wasn't. But um, I thought he was famous for something else, though. I thought he was famous for another TV show and then got the Bob Newhart show. Yeah. I don't know. I don't, I just know of him uh, uh, literally from that show. And then the things he's done. Uh, this makes no sense. This makes no sense. So the show was called the Bob Newhart show, but in the show, he played someone else. <laughs> he played Robert Hartley. So in the show named after him, he played someone else. Yeah, I mean that doesn't make any sense. I want to say that I could give you a reason, but I I can't. I just he is just that known that I had to put him on the list, so he's at, my, at number four. But why would they name the show after him, and then in the show he plays a character who is not him? <laughs> Maybe you should message uh, I don't know whoever the producers were of the show. <laughs> That's a how could you even explain that choice to somebody? <laughs> I have no idea. Bob Vila is my number four. Bob Vila was a staple of my childhood, both in terms of watching that show with my parents and then making fun of anyone who was working on their home as like, hey, Bob Vila, how's that going? Yeah, just no, just absolutely not. I can't, no. You can't put Bob Vila on there? Everybody knows who Bob Vila is. I, I, I think he's less known. I think he was known for a certain generation, which you could say about my first two. However, I feel like my first two have transcended history so far, as where in 30 years, people will not. I, I feel the generation of today has no idea. Like People are Googling right now who Bob Vila is when you said that. Hmm. You would use a little Bob Vila. Maybe you would have gotten your basement done in less than four and a half years. Do you realize that you are the only person on this podcast that has brought up my basement every week since you gave me shit like a month ago for talking about my basement? Because you talked about it so much that now I have to find out about how you're going to talk about your basement this time. Listen. How long did it take you to do your basement? Right? Bob Vila? Maybe if you would have watched those episodes, you could have got it done a little bit faster and a little bit cheaper and with less stress because Bob Vila is a solid number four. Well done. Are you, are you, can we move on now? I'm pretty pretty proud (laughs) of that, actually. Can we move on? Right? Okay. All right. Let's go. Uh, Bob Barker is my number two. 
Or three. My number three Ooh. is Bob Barker. Sorry. I think that's too high for Bob Barker. I think he's a sentimental pick at best, honestly. And I, in hindsight, shouldn't have even put him on my number five. He is, I mean, he is, he was on, you know, the price is right for what, 50 years, 40 years? He, he was, uh, how do I put this? Probably one of the top five talk show, whatever you want to say, of all time. Like he is known and he will be known just the way that Alex Trebek was known and will still be known. In 50 years, if people are watching Jeopardy, they will still know of Alex Trebek. I feel it's the same way with The Price is Right. People don't care about Drew Carey. They just look at him and see Bob Uecker. Barker. <laughs> Barker. That's another, that's another name. Jesus. A guy who's more famous for his name. Bob, I can't put Bob Uecker on the list, but he's a great name, Bob Uecker. Yeah, was... um, what, what are we at? My number three? Yes. Bob Saget. I mean, it's it's hard. I mean, you're going to have a real issue with my number two, so I can't really say anything about your number three. I think you're going to have a real issue with my number two, too. I think we're getting into the top where you can kind of move some people around there. Mm, right? Nope. Like, there's some heavy hitters coming up for the Bobs, but my number three is Bob Saget, and I know that he was America's dad at one point, but... I would not say that he was influential. Like he didn't, to me, change the face of comedy or anything like that. He was more just a famous person who was who was funny. But I wouldn't say that he's on the level of the other top tier Bobs. Like I, I remember Bob Saget as the really raunchy, terrible comedian more so nowadays, and I remember him from, you know, America's Dad. And I can't even remember who the like I I can picture who the other two guys were, but I don't I can't remember their names. The other two dads were. I can remember for some reason the guy who was Balky Bartakamus. I don't know which was that show that like came after that. I was like trading places or <laughs> something like that. They were two foreign guys. No Balky Bartakamus. Though TJ was it TGIF on ABC on Friday nights. TGIF. That was right. fun. Yeah. I remember the picture of that house though more than I remember anything from the actual show. He yeah. turned out to be the most famous person from that show, though, I think, even though he wasn't necessarily the star. Uh, what's your number two? My number two is Bob Seeger. Michigan's own, by the way, Bob Seeger. Oh, here we go. That's why. The problem is, is that when you compare Bob Seeger to the other two musical Bobs that may or may not be on this list, he is the last of those Bobs. There's two other Bobs in music that are fame, more famous and more influential than he is. Huh. Well, I. Huh. Okay. I'm. I'm. Cu- you're. You're forgetting. You're forgetting one of them. Oh boy. All right. Well, is he your number two? No, my number two is Bob Ross. I love Bob Ross. Everybody loves Bob Ross. Once again, I feel like he's like your Bob Vila pick. He's. He's okay, but he he won't be remembered outside of his. Time. He won't be remembered. Bob Ross won't be remembered. Bob Ross won't be remembered. Why? Because they, after like 20 years after he did it, they just re-released all of his episodes on Netflix. Everybody likes Bob Ross. He's he's became he's become a meme and a joke is what he's become now. He's not become a no. He has become a symbol of peace, hope, and prosperity in life. He has become a symbol of hope for people. And of relaxation, you're like, oh, Bob Ross, man, I could watch some Bob Ross. Just watch the guy painting. Just watch somebody having a good time with their life. 
and encouraging other people around him. He's not just one of the most famous Bobs. He's a great role model and an inspiration to generations of people in the past and moving forward. Don't disrespect Bob Ross. Bobby! I mean, that's two. That's two that I've gotten you with, and you just been like. I mean, I I don't agree with it, but is, I, I'm not going to cut you is off. Your sh- is your shirt inside out? It is not. No. Are you sure? Yes. Okay. All right. Just check. <laughs> that that sentence alone is going to get 50 more people to watch whatever you post with me in it this week. Uh, all right. My number one. Your shirt is inside out. It is not inside Why does out. it have such a straight collar like that, though? Look at the... Okay, you know the thing where the, like, the shoulders meet? Okay, there's no tag and you get back the there. Line, and you get the line on your shirt? You've got way too pronounced of a shirt for that to be inside, not me inside out. Look at it again. I, I agree with you. I actually, when I, when, I, when I joined in, I was like, oh, my shirt looks inside out, but it is not inside out. Have you checked it, though? I just showed you the, the, the collar of the shirt. There's no tag back there. But the tag's not on the other side either. So how do you know it's not inside out? Anyways, my number one, Bob the Builder. <laughs> Love Bob. Just kidding. It is not. Uh, my number one, uh, Bob Marley. Yeah. Yeah, that's my number one too. But I think that he is number one, really, Bob Marley. I'm more – who was the other Bob you're referring to, musician? Bob Dylan. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Really, too. you probably you really if we did this list like accurately and not based off a of personal opinion, it would probably be like you could make an argument that one and two are interchangeable, but it would definitely be Bob Dylan, Bob Marley at the top. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I mean, listen, I'm not taking anything away. Bob Dylan's definitely top ten. I don't know if he's if he's top three, but uh, yeah, that was one that I I did not think of him for whatever reason, um, but. That's a good one. Yeah. I think that Bob Seger was like the more popular musical version of Bob Dylan. Like Bob Dylan might have some really good lyrics and a message, but Bob Seger was like, you just kind of liked his music a little bit better. Like the Bob Dylan songs. Like I just, that's that's the kind of song artist that I just couldn't imagine like just driving down the road listening to all of that. Like you're gonna listen to like ten of those songs in a row. Like I'm not that depressed. Motherfucker, you'd be in Texas by the time you finish those ten songs. <laughs> just like Well, and it's those things that uses words that I don't know what that means, right? Like the summer gasoline rainbow. Well what does that mean? It's whatever you want it to mean, man. It's whatever you want it to mean. Okay, who's in your honorable Sorry. mentions? There's a lot of like mid-tier bobs. Yeah, I kept I kept it uh relatively short for my uh honorable mentions, but uh um Bob Dole. Yeah, I remember Bob Dole. He was a I was from Kansas where Bob Dole. I also remember Bob Dole like falling off a podium. <laughs> there was a great video of Bob Dole oh, falling off the podium somewhere. Uh I, I do have Bob Euchre on there, by the way. I mean, he's a household name. In the sports world, he's everybody knows him. Uh, I don't know if he's top. I don't know if he's top five or ten, but he's definitely honorable mention for me. He's in like the top twenty-five, I think. He's up there. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Bobby Knight, Bob Knight. Remember him, the basketball coach. Is he a Bob or a Bobby? Though I know him as a Bobby. Yeah, I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep it as Bob, but yeah, he's he's known. I you might be right on that one. 
Okay. Uh, another sports guy, Bob Gibson. Baseball? Baseball, yep. Fantastic. And then uh, Bob Hoskins was the other one I had. Actor extraordinaire. Bob mm. Hoskins. And don't even know who don't know who that is. Bob now. Ross, you are terrible. You know who I would make an argument that might be the most up and coming Bob and would maybe should have been on the list, but is definitely the most popular Bob right now is Bob Odenkirk. Guy from Better Call Saul. No. He's no he's not even in the top twenty of Bobs of he's, all time right now. Right now he's he's got the fastest increase right now, though. He's the only one who's picking up speed. Everybody else is kind of trying to hold on or declining. It's the only one picking up speed is Bob Odenkirk. There's no other famous Bobs on the horizon. Um, who else is in my top honorable <laughs> mention? The other honorable mentions that I got, uh Bob Costas. Oh yeah, good one. He's, I'm still confused as to how Bob Newhart had a show called the Bob Newhart Show, but then in the show didn't play Bob Newhart, played somebody else. I mean, look it up then. It doesn't make any sense. Okay, let's see any other famous Bobs. Uh, nobody really. <laughs> yeah, we we narrowed it down, I think. There is a Bob Denver. Yeah, no, not John Denver. Yeah, that's but that's not John Denver. Oh, Bob Evans. Mm, don't know who he is. The re- the restaurants, Bob Evans. What about Bob Bob Backlund? <laughs> don't you talk, Mister Wrestling? You, I thought you were a big time wrestler. Talk shit about Bob Backlund. I think Bob Evans was, deserves to be on the list. Uh, no, it doesn't. That's just because you've never been there. Yeah, because I have taste buds. Okay, that's going to go ahead and do it for this episode of Profoundly Pointless. I want to thank you so much for joining us. If you get a chance, leave us a rating or a review. Doesn't have to be some big thing, just a couple of quick words. It really helps us out. I've lost track a little bit, but I think next episode is going to be our 250th. The idea is to do something special, but... We'll, we'll see if that happens or not. Let us know, though, what you think are some of the best bobs. I do think the top two is really going to have to be Bob Marley, Bob Dylan. Maybe even Bob Hope if you're from an older generation. But after that, the kind of mid-tier bobs are really interchangeable. I mean, I could see Bob Saget going anywhere from 3 to like 10. But let us know what you think are some of the best Bobs. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.